Hello, folks. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Politics, Politics, Politics interview of the week. This week. Oh, we're talking about immigration. Not just about the modern context. No, 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 no. You know better than uh, than to expect just kind of the surface level stuff here on this podcast. I got a guest that's going to talk all about the history of immigration. We're going to talk about the initial quotas in the 1920s. We're going to talk about immigration policy in the 1800s. We're going to talk about reforms made in the 1960s, folks. It's all happening right here on this show. But before we go any further, let me remind you guys that you can support this show by heading on over to TakePoliticsSeriously.com. That is where you can get to our Patreon. Our Patreon is where you can subscribe. Give me a little money, right? At the $3 level, you get another podcast on Monday, another podcast on Wednesday. Folks, that's four podcasts a week. Talking all about the politics stuff that you need in your life. Come on. Everything else is boring. Not this. This is for the people. I don't know why I got so aggressive. All right. Uh, Let's go ahead and get into our interview. My guest today is Catherine Benton-Cohen. She is a professor of history at Georgetown University and the author of several books, including Inventing the Immigration uh, Problem, The Dillingham Commission and Its Legacy, as well as Borderline Americans, Racial Division and Labor War in the Arizona Borderlands. That actually has uh, been used as the source material for a PBS documentary called Bisbee 17. We'll talk about that and so much, but first... Let's welcome Catherine. How you doing? I'm good. Thanks for having me. You can call me Katie, Justin. Katie. Well, then I'll tell you what. This is already getting off to such a friendly start. I'm I'm very excited. <laughs> uh, good. Uh, all right, Katie. Uh, we are going to talk about uh, uh, immigration and uh, how much of a a factor it is uh, specifically in our modern uh, political uh, worldview. But first, let's talk about it historically. Uh, what is probably the biggest thing that people don't realize about how we've gotten to where we are in terms of our immigration discussion? I think the number one thing that people don't realize um, about immigration history in the United States is that we actually had no numerical limits on immigration prior to the 1920s. So um, while it is not true, as some claim that we had totally open borders and we had um, we certainly had Asian exclusion laws, which I can explain more later, but we essentially did not have a numerical cap on immigration. And we also, um, until quite recently in the 20th century, did not have a numerical cap on immigrants from Latin America. So I think that... Um, the idea that we have a numbers-based immigration system is actually a very recent innovation in American history and one I think people fundamentally don't understand. 
And, and and by that you mean that that there is you know a a a master doc that says we let in X amount of people from this country and Y amount of people from this other country or or regions, but but something like that. That Correct. this is a modern and, idea. And that exactly. And there was exactly that document uh, cooked up in the 1920s. Yeah. But prior to that, we had no system like that at all, and in some ways that created the trends that we live with. What what were the the, the, the circumstances that led to that? Were, were, were there, was there an inciting incident or just a, a growing general trend that we need to start restricting certain immigration from certain countries? Oh, well, that's, you want the short answer or the long answer? <laughs> I know. I, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm, I'm leading off with all the really easy ones here. Uh, uh, let, let, let's do, let's do the, the, the short answer first. Okay. The short answer to what led up to the quotas uh, was increasing agitation from the 1880s into 1924 um, for some kind of numerical limit on immigration. But that was a consequence of rising, really dramatically rising numbers of um, people coming from Eastern and Southern Europe from 1881 until those quota laws of the 1920s. And in my new book, well, newish, it's one year old, that's new for historians. Oh, sure. Um, I talk about, right, the, the largest study of immigrants ever, ever conducted in the United States, um, a study called the Dillingham Commission, named for its chair, who was a Republican senator from Vermont. Um, and they recommended a series of um, restrictive laws uh, for the federal government and those reports came out and recommendations came out in 1911 um, and combined uh, with their recommendations for a literacy test and some kind of numerical limit, what we would later understand to be a quota system, as well as continued Asian exclusion. Those combined with the Red Scare and the rising popularity of eugenics to create the legislative um, and kind of political pressure to create for the first time, what people called quantitative limits on immigrants in the 1920s. And what those became uh, were what became known as the National Origins Quota Laws, which gave very large quotas to countries in Western Europe that the United States liked, like Germany and Great Britain, and very, very small quotas to Eastern and Southern European countries and no quota at all to Asian countries. So that was that was the way that they would create a a better America is by making sure that only certain countries got their representation of immigrants into the borders. Right. Right. I mean, it was I mean, there's two things that leap out. And one of them is fairly obvious to most Americans if they learn anything about it, which was that it was a kind of social engineering. Right. It was yeah. quite explicit about yeah. we want people from this country and we don't want them from this country. Um, but what people don't realize is that that was really an incredible watershed, um, in my view, um, in the history of immigration law. We take for granted the size and scale of the pardon me of the bureaucracy needed to regulate immigration, mm. but that kind of federal power was very new in the early 20th century and very controversial. Yeah, I guess if you go from not monitoring this really at all to then saying, all right, in all ports of entry, we need to make sure that we are recording everybody that is coming in to, to make sure we're not going over right. quotas. That is a gigantic federal program. 
Well, I will say this, um, and a lot of people talk about this with respect to uh, the expansion of government power. The United States was counting everybody who came in beforehand. They just weren't limiting them. And in some sense, uh, theorists would tell you that's really important because governments can only see what they count, right? And so the fact that the Bureau of Immigration was counting people gave them the idea that, uh uh-oh, we have too many of these people and not enough of these people. Let's try to create regulation that changes that stream. So from the 1920s on, uh, with with these quotas, how did that affect just social policy and discourse in general going forward? Because I I think... Uh, in my head, I can kind of connect it to where we are right now, but but how did it change it in in that time? The consequences were some of them were explicit, and some of them were not clear until many decades later, and they're actually quite fascinating. So, one consequence that anybody who lives in a community with anybody from Southern or Eastern Europe, so for example. If you are of Jewish descent in the United States or Italian descent or Greek descent, it's very, very likely that your ancestors came to the United States sometime before 1924 or 27. And that is why we can kind of talk about, I'm half Jewish, for example, on that Uh side of the family, pretty much everyone my age is third or fourth generation, right? Yeah. Because after 1924, no Eastern European Jews could really get in until a few refugees after World War II. And of course, that's a whole other ball of wax, right? Um, So that's one consequence that became fairly evident. You can see that in Italian-American communities um, on the East Coast and parts of California as well. So that's kind of a cultural thing. The second thing um, was that... um, Historians have shown that there were some interesting kinds of Americanization, uh, particularly around union organizing. Uh, Elizabeth Cohen at Harvard uh, showed this, that um, because there wasn't an influx of new immigrants from these uh, European immigrant groups that were working in industrial labor and so forth, they began to find more common cause with their working class peers across ethnic lines. That's a vast simplification. Mm -hmm. Uh, but there were some cultural impacts for that too. Now, the one other thing that I have to point out that's very important that I implied earlier is that Latin America was excluded from these quotas. There were no quotas on Latin American immigration. And what I mean by that in loud letters is that Mexico didn't have a quota. Yeah. So I know you'll ask me some questions about that later, but what it, what it tells us historically, and then we can talk about its implications. Yeah. It tells us that in the 1910s and early 1920s, there was minimal concern about Mexican immigration. Yeah, this was, and I would guess because that focusing on Europe seems to be a fairly coastal point of view, right? That that this is in, <laughs> right. into the exactly. cities of of uh, you know New York City and Boston and Baltimore and 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 all these you know exactly. Washington D.C. So it's like you're focusing on who's coming in off the boat. You don't really care what's happening in the desert, uh, however many hundreds of uh, miles down to the south. That's correct. And in fact, um, as you might imagine, if you know people talk about Ellis Island, the center of gravity for thinking about immigration laws and enforcement was Ellis Island, not the southern border like it is today, right? That relationship in terms of their power vis-a-vis federal policy was really switched. Yeah. So Ellis Island, not El Paso. That was where the the, uh, the guys were. Right, which is very funny for me and might explain how I got interested in some of these things because my Eastern European Jewish 
ancestors immigrated to El Paso. Oh, wow. <laughs> Look at that. Yeah. So I've always wanted to kind of trouble the story, if you will, and dig a little deeper to figure out these these tales. Now, how has this been spun politically? Another point that I wanted to make about the implication of the quotas, I, I made one demographic point, right, that you can track these generations of the groups who basically had the door shut on them. But there's another consequence to that. Um, listeners may already know about the 1965 Immigration Act, the Hart Seller Act, uh, which regularized all those quotas and made them fair. And it was something that John F. Kennedy had really wanted to do before he died. And LBJ kind of followed through. And it, it was considered really in some ways part of the civil rights legislation that Kennedy thought it was wrong that basically the quotas discriminated against Catholic, Catholic countries, right, and Orthodox countries yeah. and Jewish countries. And so they made all the quotas the same. And there's a lot of consequences to that that, that percolate in today's politics. But what made that reform legislation possible in many ways was not just the optimism of the civil rights movement, and that was part of it. And the Cold War was part of it, too. We thought it was a smart move in terms of um, winning hearts and minds in Eastern Europe. But there was another – there was a a way in which that was possible, and it was demographic. By the late 1960s and early 1970s, the United States had the smallest percentage of foreign-born residents in its history. And that was because of the quotas, right? The number of people who had been entering the United States plummeted after the quotas, exactly as they were intended to do. And as a result, only a little more than 5% of the United States was foreign born. So right now it's hovering around and you'd have to check me, but I wouldn't be too far off. Let's call it 17%. Uh So a lot of people, frankly, didn't have a recent immigrant to compare themselves to or, if you want to take an negative view, worry about, right? Yeah. So the moment when that law passed was a really unique moment in American history demographically, and it was, in fact, a product of the quotas. Now, if you fast forward... One of the consequences of the Immigration Act of 65 is that the Hart Seller Act, by regularizing the quotas, and I'm simplifying this a little bit, your readers can read up on all the process, but essentially gave every country the same quota. The immediate consequence of that is that Mexico had the same quota as Botswana, right, and India. But the United States had long had an incredibly different relationship with Mexico and its people that changing a law overnight was not going to change the migration patterns, right? So suddenly people that had always been legal immigrants or at least not conceived of as a problem became illegal immigrants because the law changed, not because historical trends changed. Yeah. So this had been the idea of uh, Mexican uh, nationals coming into America and either moving here or working here and then going back. This had long been an established pattern of migration. And then all of a sudden the law gets put on top of it. And now we have a problem. Right. And in fairness, it had been part of an established program called the Bracero program, which began 
1942 during World War II as an emergency war workers program and continued until 1964. And so those were legal guest workers, essentially. Gotcha. But all the analysis of that since suggests that in spite of the effort for that to create a legal guest worker program, in the long term, it increased undocumented immigration because people would come to the United States, do their term, go back and realize they'd like to come back. They got a taste of U.S. life. Or they fell in love with an American-born person, and then they ended up with what we call today mixed-status families, right? Mm -hmm. And so that was a pretty um, – so that was another kind of thing that happened. I'd like to go back to your question about the idea of immigration as a problem because, of course, I think uh, you all picked up on that in, in the title of my book, sure. Inventing the Immigration Problem. Yeah. That uh, – I want to back up a little bit and talk about just that when the Dillingham Commission – this huge federal commission with 350 employees did its 41 volumes of work. Not coincidentally, it was the moment in which the fields of social science that are kind of the bedrock of our great universities today, so sociology, economics, social work, political science, those were essentially invented as fields, scholarly fields in that moment. And that Commission was largely um, staffed by economists. Actually, interestingly, both men and women, more than half the staff were women, uh, many with master's degrees, a few with PhDs uh, and law degrees. And they, they were literally trained to think of immigration as a problem. That is, they were social scientists who were given a problem, right? Yeah. In this case, immigration, whether or not we all agree it was a problem, but it was presented as a problem that they needed to solve. So in some ways, we're all living with the legacy of this kind of interesting crossover between modern social science and the growth of the federal government. And it was a moment when lots of things were called the problem. So there was the so-called Negro problem. Yeah. There was the Jewish problem and so on. And so this was, you know, all right, uh, we have all these smart people figure out how we make it better. And and, and the solution was this exactly. quota program. And notice the way you say figure it out a way to make it better. It's not sexy to say, you know what, it's just fine. There isn't a problem. <laughs> well, sure. As soon as you get paid for something, you have, right? to, you have to show that you did something, right? right? <laughs> That's exactly right. That's exactly right. Yeah, it's Economist, like it's like whenever right? whenever there's yeah, it, it's like whenever whenever there's a a, a special a prosecutor or an investigator, it's like someone's going to jail, like because they're not just going to show up in right. in a couple months and be like, "Yep, checked it out, all clean." Like somebody is going to jail for something. Right. I mean, these were economists. Just think back to college, and what do you do when you take an econ class? Is you have problem sets. Yeah. You don't go back to the press and say it's not a problem. It's built into the equation, literally. Yeah. And, you know, and that is an interesting idea that we are uh, at that point pre mass media. We are pre so many right. kind of elements of, of how we even understand our modern world today. Like those just don't exist. That These are just numbers on a paper that these people are trying to solve for. Right. And one thing that's interesting is that there were one of the chapters in my book talks about the birth of the modern Jewish lobby of a lot of um, modern Jewish organizations that were founded to combat immigration restriction. And they actually a number of, of Jewish leaders that had been in the United States were quite assimilated and successful, wrote um, an official response to the reports. And they said, 
we reject the premise. We don't think immigration is a problem. They even had this line about we think immigration is a source of great strength to the United States. And we don't, you know, we'll suggest some tweaks, but we don't accept the way that the, we don't accept the premise. It's so interesting to see that the the reform for this does come in the 60s. I've, I've done a bunch of research on the 1960 election. And if you look at a lot of that, the a lot of conversation is about this proxy war with the uh with with the Soviet Union being that we need to be like winning the the hearts and minds war around the world and and part of that is hey your relative lives here <laughs> or like we have immigrant communities Absolutely. from those areas and so yeah. from there like then you should know that democracy is the way to go exactly it, it everyone understood that it looked really bad that the United States had quite literally, I mean, whatever else you want to, what other valence you want to give to it, they were literally discriminatory quotas by yeah. definition, right? Yes. Yeah. They discriminated against one group versus another. So if you're trying to say we're the place of, you know, democracy and freedom, oh, and by the way, those quotas seem heavily weighted to Protestant countries and not Catholic and Jewish ones, it doesn't look good. No, no. Certainly I mean, I doesn't. actually think, the evidence suggests Kennedy really thought it was wrong too, but it also just doesn't look good. Sure, yeah, and and you know, considering he was somebody that proved uh, that that Catholic communities could be something that were politically viable, like that is uh, that that that's another vector. Exactly. There. Exactly. Uh, uh, all right. So uh, we're, 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 we're past Kennedy and now we have this situation where uh, there is a quota at, at the border with Mexico. Obviously, that is the kind of modern context that we think about when somebody says, how do you deal with immigration as a in a, in a, in a political context? Uh, how has that issue evolved since the mid 60s? <clears throat> so. One of the things that happened, and I'm sure you know this, is that people, uh, most prominently Ted Kennedy was one of these, who you know was a great champion of the Hart-Seller Act, promised on the floor of Congress that the Hart-Seller Act probably wouldn't change anything. They claimed that they didn't think that it would change uh, immigration flows very much. And, you know, they were wrong. Yeah. Right. Uh, immigration to the United States became much more strongly Latin American, Asian, uh, both, you know, South Asia and, and, and East Asia. And so the demographics of the United States did begin to change fairly rapidly when you consider the fact that the nation was had such a low percentage of foreign born, you know, in that period. Yeah. So. The people coming to the U.S. changed in complexion, as it were, right? Yep. Um, then, so just focusing on Latin migration, and I brought up that my family is from El Paso. So uh, as both a person, <laughs> I'm from Arizona, but both, just as a person and then getting to know this, this history a little better, when concerns about border crossing really started to pick up in the early 1990s, I was rather mystified by the ways that people talked about, I mean, obviously many racist ways, but talked about, you know, Latin American communities in the United States as this really alien thing when to me, it was really second nature. But I do think that one thing that happened is that as 
as the Mexican community and later Latin American community grew larger in the United States, it moved to places like North Carolina um, and Georgia um, and Iowa to work in industries like meatpacking and poultry processing, where there really had not been these communities before. So yeah. there were a lot of working class Americans and middle class Americans who had not been exposed to some of these immigrant communities and confronted these issues for the first time. And I think they were, to some extent, whipped up by, you know, um, demagogues who were kind of pounding the drums of, of racist opposition at the same time that people were facing new kinds of, you know, financial pressures and recessions. So this has been... I guess that so that that intervening three decades that then leads us into kind of the the Pat Buchanan uh, uh, early '90s push on the I mean, because that was the first time that I remember at least there yeah. being a a codified like border crossings are a problem. We need to build a wall like that. This was the right. the, the beginning of that. Unless um, I'm I'm missing something that 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 is no, the, the, the powder the, the powder keg that is being built. Well, and at the same time, Clinton started Operation um, Hold the Line, Operation Gatekeeper, a number of these efforts where he took a very hard line um, on border. I mean, not compared to today, sure, <laughs> but historically, sure. right, um, in which crossings were up and there was this new hard line tactic by the Border Patrol to try to redirect border crossers from big cities like Tijuana, San Diego, El Paso, Ciudad de Juarez, um, and get them to cross in rural desert areas because they were, to be blunt, easier to catch. Um, and that was a devastating policy because it made it much more deadly. Yeah. But it also had the effect of apprehending more people Thus, going back to this problem language, showing that the quote-unquote problem was large. You know, this is something that's always, just in general, immigration, the, the topic has always fascinated me because uh, I was raised in South Florida where you had not only tremendous immigrant communities, but also you had many different solutions to how to handle immigrant communities. You had, you know, Cuban immigrants right, that had, had wet foot, dry foot. Right, and conservative Hispanic community, too. Yeah, I mean, yeah, and, and they obviously <laughs> have, have their own, I mean, all politics are local, and, and theirs were, uh, you know, directed toward the, the island for which uh, they, many had risked their lives to, fled, to, to, to flee. But then you mm -hmm. also had Haitian communities where, mm -hmm. It was like, oh, okay, no, if you're caught here without papers, then we're going to deport you, you know? Uh, it, yeah. it, it's It's always been a mixed bag, but also to focus on the Cuban uh, thing, it created a vibrant community that seems to uh, operate in uh, as, as, I mean, certainly as a source of pride for South Florida, and I would say the nation, you know? And that is something that right. was literally, hey, if you can just get here, cool, you can stay here, no must, no fuss. Well, so two things about the example you just gave are really important. The first, I'll kind of go in their reverse order chronologically. Okay. Yeah. But the first is that, as you know, there's no better example of the way that politics impacts the lives of foreign-born residents of the United States than the situation of Cubans and Haitians. Yeah. If you were to describe them in a geography social studies textbook, their stories would look remarkably similar until they try to come to the United States. Yes. Right? Yes. 
And that is because the Cold War imperatives for supporting Cuban emigres from the Castro regime are 180 degrees from supporting Haitian immigrants who come to the United States. And, you know, it is, there's an example that's just flat out discriminatory by nation, but Mm -hmm. here's the point. The way that that doesn't undercut what I said earlier is that in the early 20th century, when there were no quotas, there was no reason to differentiate immigration law from refugee and asylum law. Yeah. That didn't happen until after World War II and not in a bright line until 1980. So a common misunderstanding, you told me what's the one thing I want people to know. Yeah. So I gave you one answer. Number two, and they're really tied, would be to say that immigration policy and refugee asylum policy are actually two different things. Immigration policy is driven by the legislative branch, which passes laws about immigration. Refugee and asylum policy is 100% the executive branch. That's why Trump could could have his so-called Muslim ban. Now, it had to pass constitutional muster that it wasn't discriminatory, but he did have the right to unilaterally make a decision about refugee policy, right? So yeah. this is a distinction a lot of people don't understand. He does not have the right constitutionally to say, we're going to let in 100,000 immigrants this year. He does have the right to say, we're only going to let in 1,000 refugees this year. Gotcha. Those policy decisions come out of the executive branch. And what's happened is that there's a lot of confusion and blurring between those two categories. And the example you gave of Cubans and Haitians are groups that came here as refugees. Yeah. Largely. Right. The examples I've been given are people that were trying to come largely through the immigration system. Yeah. No, that is yeah, that is a very important uh, uh, distinction. And just for folks, I mean, I, I, I might have just glossed over this, but if, if you are unfamiliar with uh, wet foot, dry foot, it was uh, a policy that up until very recently, uh, basically, if you were of if you were from Cuba, it literally this would be a thing that would happen on like, you know, afternoon television. You'd have a flotilla that would get to the coast. The Coast Guard would try to stop them. But if they could get to the beach, then congratulations, you made it. Uh, that was the literal the, right. And the, the contrast wet that yeah. right. Contrast that to the quote unquote migrant caravan crisis. Yeah. Well, one irony is that in reality, those should be viewed somewhat the same because the migrant caravans were people that were going to apply for asylum. So they were actually trying to go through the refugee asylum system, but Cubans had a special policy. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, all right. So if this is something that begins in the 1920s, is reformed in the 1960s with uh, 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 mixed results. Uh, this is something that often kind of gets talked around, uh, but I mean, who knows whether or not it's viable in, in our immediate political context, but any kind of wholesale immigration reform, uh, uh, what would be the lessons historically that you would look at and say, all right, we just need to remember the mistakes we made in the 20s and the mistakes we made in the 60s? Yeah, I mean, I wish I had a you know crystal ball or a you know, <laughs> magic wand or both. Sure. I sure don't want a crystal ball. I'm not sure I want to know what's going to happen. I would like a magic wand. But um, you know, historians aren't great at policy. But I, I guess one of the points that we like to emphasize is that 
you know, when people talk about NAFTA, for example, yeah, we created free trade, but we didn't create free flow of the peoples that do the jobs that this trade is talking about. Right. Yeah. So there is a mismatch between our immigration policy and our economic policy in this country. And also you cannot, as 65 showed, you cannot legislate overnight something, you can't change something overnight with the law or even over decades that sociology and history and economics have shaped for much, much longer, right? Um, it's just not going to work. We're never going to have a situation where we have m- migration from Mexico that's the same as any random country in Europe or Africa. Or, you know, yeah. We have a different relationship, geographical and economic and cultural with Mexico, right? Yeah. We cannot find a reform that will work unless we align the economic incentives with immigration policy. And I think that's number one. Um, I think that's number one. And we need to think of something that, again, for, for all kinds of reasons, which are ethical and constitutional, but I think also practical, we need to have an immigration and refugee policy that's non-discriminatory. Um, yeah. You know. Yeah. You know, it is it is fascinating to me to watch where we are right now and, and even having this discussion and, and say, wow, we have never in this country had any kind of immigration policy that seems to even have a, a, a you know, a realistic idea of what our current immigration patterns were. There, there was a lot of, uh, you know, trying to, to shape things the way that we wish is that we, we, we wish it would, uh, with some really weird unintended consequences. I mean, I don't know. You could go to the mid 19th century and we could use it as a point of contrast. So Bill O'Reilly just posted on social media that he visited Ireland and he heard about all the discrimination about it against his Irish ancestors. And he said, so excuse me, if I don't buy into the white privilege thing. And people wrote back and said, yeah, but Irish for all the discrimination against them, most of the social media replies were that they were legally white, which is true because even though they faced discrimination, they had legal status to citizenship, blah, 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 blah. Right. They were able sure. to politically organized. They created political machines, which made the Irish very powerful. Tip O'Neill, Pat Buchanan, right? Yeah. Fine. But there's, there's actually more to that that people neglected which is that in the 1850s, like we all recognize if you ask, I mean, if I ask my college students, if they know one thing about the history of immigration before the 20th century, they'll say, Oh, the Irish, everyone hated the Irish. True. There was a whole political party founded against that, right? The know nothings, no federal legislation passed against the Irish at all. There were state laws that, that made it a little difficult for them, but there was no federal laws against them. So what do they go on to do? They Americanize in mass numbers. They join the political system. They build the railroads. They work in factories. I mean, who's more American than Irish Americans now, right? I mean, yeah, because in they a modern context. Because they any federal immigrants, right? Similarly, before Asian exclusion in 1882, United States worked out deals with China, you know, and had this Burlingame Treaty, which gave China most favored nation status with respect to immigration, immigrants' rights. That actually worked pretty well, except that other Americans hated the Chinese. Yeah. Right. So, but that wasn't a problem of economy. That was a problem of culture and labor competition. I'm not saying that's minor, but I'm saying that wasn't really a governmental problem. Um, and so there is an interesting distinction there that we, I mean, I would argue that that was a time period when immigration worked and had a minimal policy. I'm not saying we're never going to have limits. That's not, I'm really not, 
trying to make an open borders argument here, but I'm saying we have created this mechanism that is so powerful and destructive and is separating babies from their parents. Yeah. And to what end? And this is, yeah, what this is not an optimal, I think no matter what, uh, if there's one thing that everybody can, can agree on is that this is not an optimal system. The question then of course becomes, well, then what do we do about it going forward? Uh, all right. Well, I want to thank you so much for uh, joining us, but I do want to also uh, mention the fact that again, your book borderline Americans, racial divisions and the labor war in the Arizona borderlands uh, is available for po- folks to go get, but also, there is now a PBS documentary that uh, people can learn more about and actually view at pbs.com called The Bisbee 17, based on the work. Can you uh, tell us just a little bit about this? Yes, thanks for bringing it up. Bisbee 17 is very much about 2017 and 2018 and 2019, more so than 1917. It um, is about how the former copper mining community of Bisbee, Arizona, eight miles from the Mexico border, um, dealt with the centennial of an extremely divisive labor event in 1917 in which 1,200 striking miners, 90% of them immigrants, were shipped out by basically vigilantes and uh, abandoned in the middle of the New Mexico desert. And this event was only spoken about in whispers for a century and now has been sort of revisited in the era of border politics and border divisions political divides in Southern Arizona and how does a community wrestle with sort of the demons of its past. Um, So there's a lot of relevance to border politics, but also just the general political and partisan divisions in the United States today. I highly recommend it. And so do I, everybody. Go ahead and check it out. If if nothing else, because now you know that our guest, uh, Katie Benton Cohen, a professor at Georgetown University and author of uh, Inventing the Immigration Problem, the Dillingham Commission and its Legacy, is awesome. So thank you so much for joining us. This was this was great. Thank you. That was the best part of the interview right there. <laughs> Club hopes you have enjoyed this program. <laughs>